from NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coral reefs at risk. A new study says that global warming could destroy some of the most important underwater ecosystems in the world, including Australia's Great Barrier Reef. If we're not willing to take the steps that are necessary to preserve them, I don't know what in the natural world we could find that would be important enough to protect. And the flourishing art of resurrecting roadkill and other dead animals. When taxidermists get together in friendly competition, they sometimes share secrets for gussing up their trophies. The last and final cleaning when I do a fur-bearing animal, especially the bear, I use Windex. Wash them good with Windex and then fluff them with a hairdryer, and it makes them look just like they come in out of the woods, all freshed up after a little rainstorm. Taxidermy tips and tales on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. More than 30 years ago, I went diving in the Virgin Islands into the wonderland known as coral reefs. But when I went back a few years ago, all had changed. There were still a few bright rainbows of fish and coral, but most of the area was ragged and bleak. It's not just a problem in the Virgin Islands. Pollution and exploitation have taken a heavy toll of coral reefs around the world, and climate change is threatening to make matters even worse. Indeed, according to a team of scientists in Australia, warming temperatures could cause the demise of the world's largest coral formation, the Great Barrier Reef. We begin our program today with Osha Gray-Davidson, author of The Enchanted Braid, coming to terms with nature on the coral reef. His book chronicles the natural history of what he calls the soul of the sea. Osha, can you explain what you mean by that? You have to understand about coral reefs that they only make up about two-tenths of one percent of the area of the global ocean, and yet one-third of all marine fish species are found there. And their estimated number of species of all kinds living there is somewhere between one and nine million. So coral reefs are just this unbelievable tiny fraction of the sea, but that so much of the sea depends on. It's a nursery for all sorts of fish. The small fish live in and around the coral reef, and then when they grow, they leave the reef area and they go out into the ocean, and they affect the entire ocean. So by saying that they're the soul of the sea, what I mean is they're the very heart of it, and the sea would be a completely different thing if it weren't for coral reefs. There's a part in your book where you describe a, a snorkeling expedition that uh, that you make, uh, and it has a, some well, some wonderful descriptions in them. I wonder if you could read that for us now. Sure. I must have approached the reef crest for all at once. Living corals were everywhere in the amazing variety of color and form that I had read described leather-like greenish corals. The colony folded in on itself many times, large tabletops of lacy coral structures comprising perhaps a million individuals, their tiny tentacles still withdrawn and waiting for darkness, blue-tipped corals, and others with a reddish tinge, and strewn among the bottom like upside-down mushrooms, fungia corals. Fishes were everywhere, too, and orange and white-striped clownfish peered out from a tangle of purple-tipped stinging tentacles belonging to a sea anemone. Curiosity got the better of him, 
and as long as I remained immobile, the clownfish inched his way toward me. As soon as I moved, however, he tore back into the safety of the tentacles, like a base runner tagging up. A black-tipped reef shark swam lazily by. After moving out of range, the shark returned, eyed me for a moment, and then disappeared again. Multicolored grasses poked in and out of holes. Angelfishes of many varieties nibbled bits of algae from rocks and coral. Large, gaudily-colored parrotfishes did more than nibble at the coral. They bit off entire chunks of coral, hard skeleton and all. One coral scientist has described the parrotfish's unique ability this way. They'd eat a McDonald's parking lot to get the grease out of it. I've been under the waves in the Caribbean and seen some coral reefs actually quite a long time ago, probably in the the late 60s, early 70s. I went diving there for the first time, and then in recent times I've been back, and they look very different. Why is that? You're absolutely right. Reefs have declined dramatically. I mean, when I was in Florida in the very early 70s, comparing that to what I found when I started research for this book, and I spent a a few weeks at the Moat Marine Laboratories um, in the Florida Keys, and it was amazing the difference. The large stands of elkhorn coral were gone, and that was because of a disease that had gone through. And that's something that hasn't gotten all that much attention, the, the role of disease. It's not just coral bleaching, which is bad enough, but what we're doing by putting nutrients into the water, by putting sediments into the water, and by raising the water temperatures, we're turning the coastlines into giant petri dishes that allow pathogens to grow and destroy all sorts of marine life. So there, there was a massive die-off in the Caribbean of elkhorn corals, and they're no longer the dominant coral on many reefs. And that's just in the blink of an eye that, that's changed. Help me a little bit, please, with the biology of coral. You look at a coral reef, and it looks like plants, and yet these are animals. It's truly amazing. It's one of the the most amazing things about corals, and it's why one of the reasons I titled the book The Enchanted Braid, that coral is an animal. It's classified as an animal, but it's really a braid of the three primary groupings that the world was organized into in the 18th century when taxonomy was really invented, and that's animal, mineral, and vegetable. Well, they're certainly animals because um, they don't photosynthesize. Corals cannot produce their own food, so they have these little stinging darts that come out and they feed on things that drift by. But they only get a small amount of their nutrients from eating these other creatures. And for a long time, ecologists had no idea where they were getting their energy And they looked all around the corals and trying to see what was around them, which is natural enough to do. But they couldn't account for a lot of the energy that the corals had. And then they finally looked inside the corals and they found that there's a tiny algae living inside the tissues of corals in a symbiotic relationship where they're each helping each other out. And that algae is photosynthetic. It converts sunlight into food, and the algae shares that food, a large percentage of it, in fact, with the corals. So corals were at one point described as plant animals, zoophytes, which is uh, Greek for plant animal. And there, there's some truth to that because they are this, this braid of those two. And then the final part of this braid is that corals build reefs by removing calcium from seawater. And they secrete it 
in these thin layers of calcium carbonate, which is a form of limestone, and that builds the reef. And so you've got animal, vegetable, and mineral all combined in one, one single entity. What are some of the most spectacular coral reefs out there? I was off the coast of northern Sulawesi in Indonesia. And as I went down, first at the top, there was coral, just a, hundreds of species probably. It was just gorgeous and multicolored fish. Uh, truly just outlandish and amazing. And then as I went deeper at about 65 feet, those hard corals, the reef-building corals that need, that depend on the light with their algae in them to survive, now there are very few of those and now it's beginning to have other species of coral, the soft corals. So that was really the most diverse area as far as corals go. And once you get down to 100 feet, it's almost all soft corals, these um, hard-to-describe but unbelievably beautiful, swaying, uh, gelatinous creatures and spiral wire corals which, you know, if Dr. Seuss had invented a coral, that's what he would have made, the spiral, spiral wire. And there, are, there were all these sponges, and there are crinoids, which are these beautiful feathery-headed animals that look like plants, and that's down at 100 feet. So that was one of my favorite dives, um, getting to see as you go down the different zones of a reef. Now, coral reefs are, are closely intertwined with uh, many local communities and, and economies. Uh, tell me a story of, of how local people use the reefs from anywhere in the world. Well, let me go to Indonesia because that's, that's one that comes to mind very quickly. When I was there, I was on a, a very small island, and the community was a traditional fishing community. And a man there told me a story through the interpreter he said that before, years ago, when he would go to fish for the day, his wife would start the fire to cook dinner, and that was his cue to go out and fish. And by the time she was ready with the water boiling, he'd be back with a fish. And he said it now took him two days to get fish for dinner. And that has changed their lives on this island dramatically. It's had another consequence that boomerangs and ends up hurting the reef again because it's so hard to get fish, they've taken, in this area and many other areas of the world, dynamite fishing or blast fishing. They use it's generally, I think, pop bottles filled with gunpowder, and you go out to the coral reef area where there's a lot of, there are some fish anyway. You light the fuse, and you throw it in the water. It blows up if you've timed it right so that it stuns a lot of fish and kills a lot of fish. And then you, you collect them. Well, there are a number of problems there. And one is that you blast a hole in the coral reef itself. It's enormously destructive. If you just do it once, well, it takes many, many years for it to recover. If you just do it once, okay, it'll, it'll eventually recover. But if you blast fish in one area over and over, what will happen is you've reduced reduce the entire area to, to coral rubble. Algae takes over, and there's no hope for it returning. Another effect of this is on the people themselves, the blast fishermen. This is a devastating problem in these areas, and it's in the Philippines, it's in Indonesia and many other parts of the developing world. They throw the homemade bombs into the ocean, 
And when that happens, a certain number of times they, they misjudge the timing and it explodes in their hand and they lose hands and arms. And in one village, I was told that um, a quarter of the population of men have lost a limb to blast fishing. So the effects on the people of this desperation, not only does it destroy the reefs, but it destroys the people um, who are dependent on the reefs. So what are the problems? What are some of the problems associated with the loss of coral reefs? If we destroy coral reefs, we're destroying the heart of biological diversity for the planet. And the awe that I felt when I was on the coral reef, you can read about that same awe in Darwin's writings. And so many divers who have gone to reefs experience that same feeling of awe. And future generations deserve to have the opportunity to experience that also. Coral reefs are simply, they're a large part of what makes this planet unique. They're the jewel and the crown of the blue planet. And if we aren't willing to save them, if we're not willing to take the steps that are necessary to preserve them, I don't know what in the natural world we could find that would be important enough to protect. Well, I want to thank you for taking this time with me today. Uh, Osha Gray Davidson is author of The Enchanted Braid, Coming to Terms with Nature on the Coral Reef. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been a, a joy talking with you. Coming up after a short break, we'll be joined by Professor Ove Her Goldberg, who is the director of the Center of Marine Studies at the University of Queensland in Australia and co-author of A Study on Climate Change and the Threat to Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Stay tuned to NPR's Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Today we're talking about coral reefs. And for the next part of our program, we turn to Ove Her Goldberg. He's the director of the Center for Marine Studies at the University of Queensland and co-author of a study on climate change and the threat it poses to Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Professor Herr Goldberg's research indicates that the reef could die off entirely in the next 90 years. Some conservationists have labeled that possibility a global crisis and a nightmare for the planet. And Australians could expect to lose more than $2 billion a year that the Great Barrier Reef currently adds to their economy from tourism. Professor Herr Goldberg is on the line now from Brisbane. Thanks for joining us. Hi, nice to be with you. Tell me, how did you get interested in coral reefs anyway? Well, I can trace my interest in coral reefs back to a trip I made with my Danish grandfather who went to the Great Barrier Reef um, as a tourist um, and as a butterfly collector. And we went for a snorkel and this was 1969 when I guess men were on the moon and I got to the reef and it was really... uh, I can still remember the sort of entering the water and seeing my first butterfly fish, you know, which had significance for my grandfather. And, uh, yeah, from thereafter, I I hungered after getting up to the reef or or going below the water in Sydney and imagining I was on a coral reef. Now, who was your co-author on this project? Hans Hergulberg, who is actually my father. And uh, he's an economic forecaster, um, has written many, many reports on things like what is tourism going to do in the future and so on. And so uh, it was a natural partnership for us to try to ponder the future of a very complex economic and and social phenomenon, which is the Great Barrier Reef. If you had to describe a coral reef, how would you describe it? 
I suppose it is very much like the most amazing metropolis full of, you know, clowns and artisans that are doing things in ways which sort of defy almost what you've been taught about in terms of evolution. And so when you see parrotfish going across the reef that are painted pink and bright green, and that's the result of natural selection, you have to go, wow, you know, how that, you know, what, what function does that have? And it's only when you delve into it do you realise that all of these sort of signals and the things that we're picking up on are actually very finely tuned adaptations. You know, the, the parrotfish is trying to show off how dominant he is over his band of females that he um, he rules over. So it's a, it's a funny place because at first it seems impossible, but then when you get to know that the million species, and it may be as much as nine million species living on coral reefs around the planet... Each has a special and finely crafted um, position within that, that ecosystem. And how is it that you came to decide you wanted to do a study about climate change in coral reefs? Well, my interest in climate change was quite accidental. Um, I did my PhD at UCLA in Los Angeles, and I started studying a phenomenon known as coral bleaching, and, and this was in the sort of early to mid-'80s. And at that point, we didn't really know what this phenomenon was. All we knew was that reefs in off Florida and in the Caribbean had been going white over large areas. And in studying that, I, uh, by the end of my PhD, had sort of come to the conclusion that, like some early authors uh, in the 70s, a small change in temperature can cause you know, this phenomenon. And in fact, by that time, satellite um, experts at... NOAA in Washington and so on, were reporting a great correlation between bleaching and sea temperature rise. And what we were seeing was the first signs of climate change. Now, you've just finished a report on the impact of climate change on Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Uh, can you tell us about what's in your study and what you found? Well, one of the most important, um, I guess, aspects of climate change, you know, the large-scale mass destruction for example, that we saw in 1998, where we lost 16% of the world's corals. Um, we get to a point where we go, well, so what? You know, are corals important? And so what we tried to do with this report was to take um, the perspective on what's happening to reefs to that very important level of the socioeconomic ramifications. What does it mean for Australia if the Great Barrier Reef no longer has coral on it? And... Uh, to do that, you really need to evaluate the importance of coral. And when you do that, you actually um, you come up with some surprising sort of facts about how dependent a lot of the um, local economies in Australia are to the Great Barrier Reef. Now, Australia is one of a very few industrialized countries that have yet to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. Russia hasn't, although recently uh, Mr. Putin in Russia said he would. Uh, the United States hasn't, and Mr. Bush has said pointedly he will not, and Australia hasn't. Do you think that uh, your report is going to change any minds there in Australia about the Kyoto Accord? Well, I think it's part of a fabric that we have to build up, because I think up until probably the last couple of years, I think politicians have been able to avoid the idea that there are great costs of not responding to climate change. And I should say that 
the various ministers that are involved with looking after the Great Barrier Reef uh, have actually been um, quite responsive to the report. And there is a sea change, I think, happening within the Australian political scene where people are starting to realise that um, isolationism, which is essentially what not signing Kyoto amounts to, will not work in the long run. And so I think that when people are actually told that, well, it could be an $8 billion cost over 19 years, and that's just the real minimum part of this cost in terms of, of uh, the effect of climate change on the, you know, the Great Barrier Reef alone, and you start to add up the effect on rainforests and you start to look at the impacts on agriculture and, and uh, water availability, you start to see that the costs of not responding are um, much, much larger than the costs of responding. Now, Professor uh, Herr Goldberg, l- l- let me ask you this. In your report, you state that only if global average temperature change is kept to below 2 degrees Celsius can the Great Barrier Reef have any chance of recovering from the, the damage that's being predicted here. And I'm wondering how likely you think it is that, uh, in fact, we can keep temperatures from rising more than that here on Earth. That's one of the more tricky scenarios, unfortunately, trying to keep the temperature um, from rising more than two degrees. That's the lower end of the intergovernmental panel on climate change, which is that huge body of scientific credibility that have come up with future scenarios, that two degrees is at the bottom range. I mean, the more likely range that we're going to hit by the end of uh, this century is uh, about four degrees. Um, and so you're right, it's it's a very tricky thing that we have to um, to to achieve here. But I think unless we understand what the goal is, I mean, we can't Science has to deliver the truth to society, I think, about what the state of opinion is and and what we think is um, where we need to go in terms of this. If we don't, of course, then we're kidding ourselves. So I I think we've got to really sort of um, call it as it is, and then I think we've got to look at what we can do socioeconomically. I mean, we are an amazing species, you know, to put it bluntly. Um, I'm, you know, what technologies we may um, dream up in the next few decades may totally change the perspective on what we can actually achieve. In your report, you talked about the importance of the reef having ecological resilience in order to uh, to survive the impacts of climate change. And um, just recently, uh, your environment minister there in Australia, David Kemp is his name, I have that right? Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. I believe he announced that he's going to increase the protected zones and marine sanctuaries in the Great Barrier Reef from uh, 4% to something like uh, 30% or a third, something like that. Well, the good news is that that's been passed. So the Great Barrier Reef, which only had 4.6% in no-take zones, now has 32.5% of the reef uh, protected from any sort of extraction. So that process that we went through last year was really one of the, I I think, one of the great success stories of of, uh, conservation. And it came about using the sort of societal pressures. I mean, everyone loves the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, and I think 
people were quite shocked when they found out that you know only 4.6% was actually in no-take zones, you know, complete protection zones, because everyone had assumed that if it's the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, that must certainly mean that it's it's all protected. I guess so. I was just going to go back to that um, the question of reef resilience. Yes. Um, that question is is a very interesting one because one of the outcomes early in the piece, and it was it was a sort of almost you know tragic debate, if you like. And people would say, well, look, um, if uh, reefs are all stuffed because of climate, then why are we bothering to you know um, reduce the impact of industry on coastlines that have coral reefs, and why are we trying to solve sediment problems in rivers and agricultural runoff? And the answer actually is that. Those other issues are even more important now because of the following issue, and that is that we know that reefs that get affected by this phenomenon of coral bleaching will recover faster if we're not impacting them with all these other, uh, other issues. If we're not hitting them with huge amounts of sediment when they bleach, they've got a good chance of bouncing back. And that's what reef resilience is all about. It's about how quickly you can get up after you've been knocked down. Now, of course, if you are being beleaguered by a whole series of other stresses, then your ability to get back up off the ground after a climate event, of course, is small. So reef resilient conservation of reefs is even more important than it was before the um, realisation of, of the climate threat. I mean, now we really should be looking at these large no-take zones because we've got to leave reefs with as many options, if you like, for bouncing back from, from bleaching events. Let's go back to the parrotfish, the garish parrotfish walking, uh, swimming across the reef. They actually play an important role in keeping the algae at bay, right? They, they eat algae, so they're cropping coral reefs all the time. Now, when you have a bleaching event and you have parrotfish, then the parrotfish essentially keep the bottom of the ocean open for the settlement of corals and so on. Now, if you don't have, the coral, if you don't have those parrotfish, you don't have the gardeners and you have a bleaching event... Uh, then the algae have been observed to go wild. You know, corals die off, the algae settle onto the dead corals, the parrotfish aren't there to eat them, and essentially what happens is the reef changes to an algal reef. And, of course, that's a very graphic example of why you need MPAs and these large no-take zones in a time of climate. We need as many options, many components of coral reefs to make sure that they can bounce back after uh, periodic periods of stress. Oh, uh, I wonder if, if you thought when you got into science that you would have to do so much politics. That is a very good question. Um, I had no idea. <laughs> I, I, and, and I, you know, it came down to, um, I think, you know, I, I saw my grandfather, this lepidopterous butterfly collector, and... You know, he would spend his days sort of looking at his collections and writing papers on, you know, what was going on with the butterflies and so on. And and I used to look at the um, historic figures like um, Maclay, who was a guy who operated out of Australia in the 1800s, which were academics, and they would literally be pondering on biology by the day and probably taking tea at the regular hour and so on. But the way biology has gone now is that we've been linked into these incredibly important debates. When you are talking, when you are talking about the 
you know, the prospect of, of a massive decline in these beautiful ecosystems, which when you put a number on them in terms of tourism and fisheries, I mean, that's really overlooking the fact that it's really a, an art treasure, you know, which you can't cost. And when you're faced by this, you find that you're, you're compelled into having to provide um, scientific opinion and in some ways to to enter into the, the game of, of, of politics because it, it becomes so important. That's where the action is. Um, yeah, no, I had no idea. We need to go, but um, tell me, uh, I've actually never been to the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, how much time oh, do I have? sinful. Uh, how much time do I have to get down there to see it uh, the way it should be seen? Well, I think we've got a good few decades left, and uh, it really depends on what your and my country do in terms of, of controlling greenhouse gas emissions. But I'd say you've got a good um, decade or two. It depends on, um, obviously, uh, look, this is so beautiful. I can't believe you haven't come down here and seen it. I mean, it really is one of the most spectacular treasures. And OSHA did a very good job, I think, of describing going across the reef crest and I mean, that's just the beginning of the journey. I mean, when you get down to 30 metres and you see these soft coral gardens that are really like some Lewis Carroll manifestation, you know, the pinks and greens and strange fish that sort of poke out, you know, they poke their faces out and then disappear and then strange shellfish try to sort of catch your eye. It it really is. I mean, you, uh, look, you'll have to come down to Heron Island and I'll you, I'll host you. Okay, there's a there's a an offer on radio. Well, how can I turn that down? Well, I hope you won't. Over Goldberg is co-author of The Implications of Climate Change for Australia's Great Barrier Reef, and he's director of the Center for Marine Studies at the University of Queensland in Australia. Thanks for taking so much time with me today. Oh, it was a, very much a pleasure. Thank you. program anytime on our website. The address is livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. You can reach us at comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs, tapes, and transcripts are $15. Just ahead, one man's roadkill is another man's trophy. That is, if you're a taxidermist. First, this note on emerging science from Susan Shepard. If we had the same sweat glands as the hippopotamus, we'd have little use for the sunblocks and anti-infection creams cluttering our medicine cabinets. Japanese researchers studying the secretions of hippos say these hairless river horses literally sweat sunscreen. And this slow-setting lather doesn't just protect them from the hot equatorial sun. It doubles as an antiseptic to help heal wounds as well. Scientists at the Kyoto Pharmaceutical University in Japan recently discovered the sweat-salving powers by analyzing swab samples taken from hippos at a Tokyo zoo. They found the hippo sweat is made up of two pigments— 
one red, called hipposidoric acid, and the other orange, dubbed norhipposidoric acid. At first, the hippo sweat is a colorless, sticky liquid, but it gradually turns blood red and then darkens as the pigments bond to form a polymer. This plastic shell absorbs ultraviolet light, just like commercial sunscreens. Scientists found the red pigment also makes a good antibiotic, which may explain why hippos, when nicked and cut from their frequent scraps with rivals, don't seem to get infections. But researchers are not rushing to parlay this sweat science into any human-friendly skin applications. That might be because hippo body odor is far smellier than our own. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Susan Shepard. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Aveda, an earth-conscious beauty company committed to preserving natural resources and finding more sustainable ways of doing business. Information available at Aveda.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities on the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Generally, death is the end of the line for most creatures, but not if their skins fall into the hands of a taxidermist. Taxidermy is the art and science of stuffing and preserving animals. It's been around since the days of hunting and gathering. A good stuffed specimen should look every bit as lifelike as the real McCoy. Now, it used to be that all one needed was a good eye and a weak nose to work the craft. Those are still needed, but these days taxidermy has gone high-tech with plastics, and the friendly competition among practitioners has gotten stiff. Recently, the Maine State Association of Taxidermists gathered in Newport, Maine, for its annual convention and taxidermy competition. Living on Earth's Jennifer Chu was there and has our report. Mitch, run around and ask somebody if they got a three-quarter-inch socket. Larry York is doing some last-minute fluffing and combing. He's just hauled in a van load of turkeys, deer, and wild boar that he's preened and perfected over the past year. Right now, he's setting up his piece de resistance, a North Carolina bobcat that's leaping towards a baby fawn. He's going to be hanging right from that leg, yeah. Like he's jumped off the top of that rock and this is lunch going by. York is one of two dozen taxidermists who hope to take home a trophy from this weekend competition. It's also a chance for normally solitary artisans to swap some stories and get some tips. Don't, don't move the bird that's on the leaf there. Right. Last thing I want to see is yeah. breaking it. It's Mark Russell's last day as head of the Maine Association of Taxidermists, a title he's held for the past three years. Yeah, we're, we're not a tight-knit group, but, uh, you know, we're friends and we talk with each other and... You know, the stories will be flying. Generally, it's hunting stories and the, the piece that you mounted and how you did it. But generally, we're all a good good group of guys, and we're all have, just here really to have a good time. Tomorrow, he'll hand the presidency over to his friend John Wardwell, a fellow taxidermist who's been in the business for 15 years. But for now, they're just two guys checking out the competition. This is a muddy pig. What's he bringing a muddy pig for? <laughs> <laughs> kind of a neat idea. I don't know. We look like hell to get them clean and look nice and everything. I and know, then you splat of mud all over them. What's up with that? <laughs> Just behind this pig is Wardwell's sparkling clean entry, a boar's head that, if seen from the right angle, looks like it's got a secret. Wardwell has a few secrets of his own that he says puts him ahead of the game. The last and final cleaning when I do a fur bearing animal, especially the bear, I use Windex. 
wash them good with Windex and then fluff them with a hairdryer and it makes them look just like they come in out of the woods, all freshed up after a little rainstorm. Did you do that with your boar too today? He got washed with fantastic, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. and he smells pretty. He's a handsome boy. <laughs> Many of these taxidermists have worked on their pieces for months and some even up to a year. It's a craft that takes infinite patience, and many spend days fitting glass eyes or flaring nostrils just right. For Wardwell, it was the board's dental work that kept him up nights. I think the biggest problem I had with it was the gums that show along his teeth line, that really flesh tone inside of the mouth, and then as they move up to the hairline, they gradually get darker and darker and darker, so you kind of got to blend your paints from flesh to a burnt amber color. It's at this moment that the taxidermist sounds like any suffering artist, frustrated by the chasm between his subject and his work. For early taxidermists, it was even harder to bridge that gap. As Wardwell and Russell wait for more entries to file into the showroom, they chat up their friend Steve Gilbo, who recently got his hands on a taxidermic relic. You know, you got to be careful with some of those old mouths. Oh, I bet. Because some of them were pickled with formaldehyde. It was. It was very powdery. Once you cut it open, it was all real powdery. And, and this guy had wrapped it, and there was some chicken wire in it. Yeah. And they had wrapped some newspaper and everything. Plaster. And it was nice. Back then, taxidermists improvised with anything they had at hand, from cotton balls to wood shavings. And according to Mark Russell, they'd even employ nature herself. Well, back years ago, before there were, there were forms, um, they'd put the skull out on an anthill or something and the, the ants or the bugs would clean it up and the, or they could they boil they could boil the meat and membrane off and they would actually reuse the skull and the lower jaw. These days, instead of stuffing a skin with newspaper, you can order a plastic form of any number of species and choose from a variety of poses. You can then use a custom glue to fit your hide over the mold. Though it may seem like all this technology only makes the work easier, some say it served to raise the bar in terms of workmanship. A recent issue of the popular trade magazine Taxidermy Today is chock full of ads for hide paste, critter clay, and styrofoam mannequins. There are also notices of apprenticeships and special trade schools. And just a floor above the competition's showroom is the country's only high school taxidermy class. Well, I wasn't sure when I first come into the program. I was kind of, I don't know if I can do it, but as I went on, I got used to it. And sometimes the smell is a little gross, but you get over it. Mallory McAvoy is a junior at Nokomis High School. It's her first year in this classroom, which from the outside looks like any other high school science lab, except that inside, the tables are filled with plastic animal parts and boxes of furs and skins. See, this is one of our freezers, right full of animals. Usually the projects we're working on we put in here. Mallory fishes out her current project, Hector, her recently deceased pet pheasant. He's nice and fat. <laughs> and I think he died of old age, but we're not sure. He's pretty, so I'll be doing him sometime. Getting some ideas from downstairs to see how I want to pose him. Mallory's teacher is Howard Witten, a man dressed in blue overalls with a habit of picking up roadkill for possible student projects. He started the class 10 years ago and says he's taught every kind of kid there is. I will say this. Uh, in 10 years, the girls are the best. They, they kick butt. <laughs> for instance, if, if I 
brought a girl and a boy and had them look at a deer. First thing out of the boy's mouth would be, look at the rack, look at those horns, look at the antlers. The girl, it's usually, oh, look at the eyes, look at that mouth. But take a look at the two dozen or so taxidermists who have come to compete downstairs, and there's not a woman among them. And even though Witten says there's no gender barrier in his classroom, history shows that the field was very exclusive. Historically, taxidermy has been a real secretive clique of men that won't invite anybody into their shop. They don't want to divulge any secrets. Historically, uh, your museums only employed men to do all the, the taxidermy displays. There are few requests for such elaborate displays today. Places like Harvard's Natural History Museum have sizable collections, mostly acquired decades ago. Judy Chapasco is a curator in the museum's mammal department. She says that some exhibits are starting to show their age. The giraffe is incredible. It's a huge giraffe. And, um, but you can see he's kind of busting out of his seams here. Poor guy looks like he's out in the savanna, doesn't he? But um, and he needs water really bad. Chapasco estimates this giraffe was stuffed 150 years ago, when the country's museums and the public couldn't get enough of taxidermy. I think back in the 1800s when, when a lot of uh, naturalists were trying to describe and define species and new species, and they were traveling all over the world. It, it was a whole different mentality than probably now, but that's because it was a different place in time. It was Darwin's origins of species that really vaulted the field into its golden age. When the book hit shelves in 1859, it seemed everyone wanted a piece of nature, the educated elite more so than anyone. Perhaps the pinnacle of taxidermy came in 1916, when one of its most famous students, Carl Akeley, was accepted into the National Institute of Social Sciences. The occasion was for, quote, making taxidermy one of the arts. Judy Chapasco says today's science of animal stuffing is quite a different field. I don't think we've had a taxidermist on staff in the museum for probably 50 years. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much as close as you get to that. I'm not a taxidermist. So. But we, we could figure out who to talk to to get things done if we needed to. Creative taxidermist. Brad Fournier occasionally gets calls from local schools and museums. But as with most taxidermists, the work that pays the bills comes from hunters. Sportsmen have big egos a lot of times, and if they bring in a fish or a deer, it's, they're having it mounted because it was a large one, and they're trying to uh, display how big it was. And so usually with a fish, the, you know, the fatter you can make the belly or the larger you can make the neck on a deer mount makes a customer pretty happy. Fournier took up taxidermy as a kid. It started with a how-to book from the library. He later enrolled in the Pennsylvania Institute of Taxidermy and now has a full-time business in Haverhill, Massachusetts, at the back of his parents' house where he also lives upstairs. The commute's great. You can do it in slippers. Right now, he's fitting a deerskin over a foam mold, a popular form that's known as the right-turn semi-sneak. He's sewing up the back of the animal, and watching him work is a little like watching a tailor. There's a little oil on that thing. At a certain point, do you kind of forget that you're working on an animal? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Just, I guess it almost is like doing upholstery at some point. Especially when you're sewing up the leather like this. And uh, you can almost do it without 
really thinking about it. This one's pretty much ready to fly. In fact, every year he files his taxes, Fournier says he has to list his business under upholstery. And while the IRS may not recognize the trade, there are some 70,000 taxidermists in the country today. 10% are full-time, and the other 90 could spend up to 40 hours a week on the craft, even while holding down another job. There seems to be growing interest in the field. You can even find a taxidermy show on cable television. Have you seen a show about the guy that travels woods and lakes? He teaches how to taxidermy everything he takes. He paints a fish so lifelike that it could swim away. Just so you remember that very special day. Taxidermy Trails made its debut on the Outdoor Channel this past January. It's aired on a network that primarily focuses on hunting and fishing, and the show's producers say it's the first time the ins and outs of taxidermy have been shown to a national audience. After the skin dries, the thick and plumpness of the nose pad dries down. So most often the taxidermist can rebuild the texture and make the nose nice and full, just like a live deer. Dan Bantley is the show's host and creator. Speaking in a recent phone conversation to Living on Earth, he said while much of his fan mail comes from fellow hunters, other letters are from fans he didn't expect. We've got a lot of emails from people's wives that said, gee, I you know, always enjoy watching a show with my husband, you know. And so it didn't set out originally to be like that, but that's, uh, we wanted to appeal to a broad scope of viewers. Bantley's show might just be the thing to bring husbands and wives closer together. That is, if one is into stuffing animals. Living with a taxidermist could present certain tests of loyalty. There's the smell of chemical preservatives and the inevitable clutter of accumulated mounts. Back at the competition in Maine, Tom Barrowby is known to his friends and colleagues as the king of birds. But his wife might have a different opinion. She's gotten mad a few, at me a few times, like the time she walked in and I was taking a bear out of the washing machine. Uh, you know, I guess I had gone too far. But I, I still use the, uh, the, the family washing machine to spin dry bird skins. Fluffing a bird's tail feathers through the spin cycle may seem excessive and a bit eccentric. But it's this technique that's earned Barrowby his title. He also has the trophies to prove it. Today, he's just here to offer moral support as his friends await their final scores. Number 45. Okay, correct use of paints. Hmm. What you call? He's got like scratches in his paint. Mike Brigani is one of two judges at this competition. For the past two hours, he's brandished a flashlight on dozens of birds, making sure each feather is in place. He's even sniffed a few of them to make sure no rot has taken root. As for deer... It has to have the accurate nostril shape of the interior of the nose, coloring, texture, uh, inside the ears, down where the ear canal meets the skull has to be accurately reproduced. Uh, we've, we've taken it to a level now where uh, some of the judges like to joke, you know, that you could bring in a live deer and it wouldn't do very good in competition <laughs> because some of these judges are looking for such detail. While the judges make their final decisions, a few taxidermists pace outside. It's Gordon Foster's first time competing. As he awaits his score, he mentally lists all the things he could have done better. A lot of these guys here, like myself, already know their mistakes. But when, you know, it's like a carpenter. You know, you can go into a house and see a finished job and it looks great to you. But the person that did the carpentry work knows where, you, you know, a little cut here he made or a little mistake there, so...
I let the dice roll where they got them. We're open. As the competitors file in, the judges study their stance. It's the moment Mike Brigani calls the fun part, when the judges tell the competitors what they could improve. At the moment, the other judge, Mike Vickerson, is evaluating Gordon Foster's work. On your nose. You're pretty good on the inside. You're a little short. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. Janie, want to grab my, my freeze-dried nose? The nose on top of my bag. And look here, too. You see where the leather is? That leather should be right on the edge. He's a big freaking animal, I'll tell you that. It's not a bad review, and Foster says he's happy with his second-place white-tailed deer. With a little feedback from his fellow taxidermists, he might just snag first prize next year. For Living on Earth, I'm Jennifer Chu in Newport, Maine. Uh, if you want to straighten these edges, they get like that. You can always take a steamer, you know, a little hand steamer, like yeah. a, a drapery steamer. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, does the mountain lion still roam the eastern United States? This one does, but only behind the fence of an animal sanctuary. Most scientists say the mountain lion was wiped out in the east early in the last century, but nonetheless, every year, hundreds of people report seeing the big cats. I'm not guessing that there are mountain lions in New England, or I'm not supposing. I know they're here. I've seen them for 30 years. Following the trail of the eastern cougar, next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Before we go, we witness some moments between predator and prey. A raven in flight scopes out frogs in Black Lakes, New Mexico. Recordist David Dunn captured these sounds. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Bullock, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young. Our interns are Jenny Cecil, Diana Schoberg, and Monica Wright. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our technical director is Paul Wabrek. Al Avery runs our website. Allison Dean composed our themes. Special thanks to Ernie Silver and Carl Lindemann. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, 
and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. Ten percent of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. This is NPR, National Public Radio.